You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Thirteenth February two thousand and eight. These words made headlines around the world. The time has now come for the nation to turn a new page. A new page in Australia's history by righting the wrongs of the past and so moving forward with confidence to the future. Kevin Rudd, then Prime Minister of Australia, publicly apologised for the way successive governments had treated Indigenous people across the country. But I think as a turning point in Australian attitudes towards race, it was pretty important. So I'm pleased to have been one small historical vehicle in that process. Kevin Rudd now heads a think tank, the Asia Policy Institute. He's based in New York, but because of the pandemic, he's now at home in Australia, not far from where he grew up on a farm. In this episode of Out of Office, he reflects on his childhood. And because I had an intrinsic lack of interest in farm work, and maybe because I was lazy or I just didn't aspire to a career in Australian animal husbandry, I used to disappear with a book under my arm to a distant part of the farm and, uh, and quietly lose myself. On politics and politicians. They form into two groups. Those who love playing Machiavelli and the uh, art and science of of political manipulation, which personally has always made me want to vomit. And then there's another bunch who are actually interested in public policy and that what you can do with the political process to bring about substantial change. That's what I miss. And he tells us why he's the handball king of Australia. So the deal is I'll go and play handball at your school, but you get to have a presentation from me on racial reconciliation. So there's a, there's a, there's a method to my madness. There's all that and much more in this episode of Out of Office with the 26th Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd. Mr. Rudd, welcome to Out of Office. Good to be with you. So you haven't been back in Australia for this chunk of time in a while, I imagine. So what's it like being home? It's been terrific uh, since I left office. Some years ago, I've lived um, primarily, well, almost exclusively in the United States. And the last five years, I've been um, president of a New York-based think tank, the Asia Policy Institute. So I haven't spent this slab of time uninterrupted back in Australia uh, since Adam was a boy. So it's been uh, good to be home. And I'm back in my home state of Queensland uh, and back not far from the farm that I grew up on in rural Queensland all those years ago. What was it like to grow up on a farm and 
How do you think that experience shaped you as an individual? Well, farm life in Australia is uh, is uh, an experience which I'd recommend for most kids. Um, you have uh, room to move. Uh, you have uh, animals to play with, but also learning respect for animals. Uh, as a local small community, uh, you learn to rely upon each other because back in those days, there wasn't much by way of uh, government support for anything. Uh, and at the local school, which had four teachers, uh, and probably four. yeah, four teachers, we had about, a, I think, 100 kids or so uh, divided into seven different grades, so there weren't many of us. Uh, and, uh, and that's where I spent my entire primary school. So you do uh, learn to value uh, the nurture of a local uh, close-knit community. But if you're a kid also interested in the world of ideas through the books your mother fed you, uh, then you certainly wish to grow beyond it as well. Did you read a lot? Did your mom encourage a love of reading in you? Not very much so. My mother, uh, who was a self-educated woman, she was not educated herself beyond primary school. Uh, and my father the same. Uh, they were both... Uh, out of school by the time they reached their teenage years. My mother in particular had a uh, fascination with language, uh, with literature, uh, was essentially self-taught, used to write for the local newspaper, um, essentially a local gossip column. And, uh, and as a result, was always throwing books at the kids. Uh, I was the youngest of four. And because I had an intrinsic lack of interest in farm work, and maybe because I was la lazy, or I just didn't aspire to a career in Australian animal husbandry. Uh, I I, uh, I used to disappear with a book under my arm to a distant part of the farm, and uh, and quietly lose myself. Um, so that actually excites at an early age sort of what you would call, I think, the life of the mind and life of the imagination. I know. Unfortunately, you lost your father quite early, and you were raised by essentially by your mom as a as a single single mom. And I did read somewhere that you saw how she was treated in Australia and she wasn't always treated very fairly. How did that influence your ideas and your thoughts about gender equality? Well, back in the days when the term feminism was never discovered, because uh, I was, uh, my father died in the late 60s, so, um, and I was uh, still a kid in short pants. I think I saw uh, just how rough it was on single women. Uh, and there was uh, what I described, I think, in my autobiography as the bleak charity of the time. And it seriously was. And the levels of discrimination against uh, women able to go out and work for themselves and to raise a family for themselves, the idea that the assumption that someone like her could not have run the farm that I'd grown up on was... Uh, because it's supposed to be a male-dominated profession. The farm is for men. Yeah, whereas if I look back on it, my mother used to do as much work on the farm as my father, you know, and that's outside the kitchen. She'd all the work in the kitchen, but half Plus the work... the farm work. That's right. <laughs> well, welcome to the eternal lot of women, you know. you got to be... You, know, <laughs> you said it, yeah. <laughs> you got to be uh, active in the world and, and lifting all those burdens. And by the way, uh, once you uh, return to the hearth, it's your job, or at least that's the assumptions of society at right. the time, quite unfairly. So I thought... As a kid, not understanding what feminism or the rights of women might be, because you're just a kid, 
I just regarded it as uh, yeah, unjust. Uh, and similarly, unjust in the sense that when you cease to have somewhere to call home, because we were effectively um, out uh, on our own, uh, there was nothing by way of social support and what we describe today as community housing or social housing or affordable accommodation. You were just spending for yourself. I think that's why I turned into a social democrat. You know, I know you're not just a passionate advocate of gender equality, but you're a big advocate for equality, whether it comes to same-sex marriage or equality between communities and races and people around the world. Are you concerned about the rise of protectionism, nationalism, and even racism in a post-COVID world? And are you seeing some instances of it already? Yeah, I think there's a danger for all of us to assume that history is somehow linear and that we're in a permanent post-war pattern of progressive enlightenment. I wish that was the case, um, uh, but the Enlightenment project constantly has to be reinvented, whether it's um, the various equalities you've just referred to, that uh, it's not the permanent condition. There are always forces of reaction against them. So our sense of internationalism and international responsibility runs hard up against conservative, neoconservative and far-right agendas of nationalism and protectionism. Our, our view that the emancipation of humankind from you know, male patrilineal societies into something more humane involving the equal rights of women um, uh, generating its own forces of reaction again. And similarly, uh, on questions of race, where the sort of ancient notions of whiteness and non-whiteness, which we thought we had largely put to bed, somehow um, rise to the fore again. And, of course, other forces of racism beyond... Um, I'm patting my dog here. Uh, beyond... Uh, what breed is she? She's a 15-year-old golden retriever. I'll show you around the side here. There you go, sweetheart. Oh, she's beautiful. We can find her front end. Abby. Oh, there. Abby. So this one is, uh, she's about 105 in human terms. So throughout <laughs> right. being prime minister, foreign minister, she's been with us all the way through. So she's known most oh. tra most traumas known to humankind. But back to our... <laughs> she's been through it all. <laughs> so both, back to the thesis, yes. though, is um, it's like... Uh, yeah, we thought we'd put racism to bed in the United States, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, um, whether it's uh, India, um, whether it's a uh, phenomenon of race in various parts of, uh, of Europe, and what we've seen most recently in China with um, racism towards uh, Africans uh, in um, southern China. And so these things raise their ugly head. So there is a rolling responsibility to reinvent on a continuing basis, the Enlightenment project, which is um, about the equality of all of us. It, unfortunately, it simply never becomes finally settled as the permanent consensus. We've got to permanently fight for it to be the consensus for the next generation. The coronavirus has meant that we've slowed down a little bit. Most of us have had some time to think a little bit more, to self-reflect a little bit. And I just wonder, when you look back at your career so far, what are you proudest of? I think one of the things that uh, I'm proudest of, uh, but not the only thing, was I think finally helping to 
turn the corner in Australia in terms of uh, traditional Australian attitudes towards our Indigenous peoples, uh, the Aboriginal Australians. That's one moment from your time as Prime Minister that was distinct for me. And I remember watching and thinking this is truly historic. And that clip of you speaking in Parliament was, was quite incredible. And, yeah, and the one line that really stood out for me is when, when you said, For the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. That was incredibly powerful. Yeah, I think it was, and I, I know that from having spoken to now literally thousands of Indigenous Australians over the years about the impact of those words on them. And, of course, the Conservative critics would say they're just words. Well, my response is usually to say, think of our own human relationships. When we've offended somebody at a deep level, uh, you can't cross the bridge towards a reconciliation of that relationship until you've said sorry. Absolutely, I agree. I mean, that's, that's the bridge. The, the, then, of course, you've got to do some other things as well, yeah, by way of restitution, by way of um, justice for the future, and we did those things as well, a national strategy which I call Closing the Gap, uh, $5 billion worth of investment in closing the gap in education, housing, homeless, uh, and uh, employment and uh, life expectancy and uh, some of which have worked over the last decade, some of which less so. But what I say to the critics is you can't begin that work unless you've finally joined hands across the bridge. Uh, and you can't do that by ignoring the fact that for 200 years I've screwed you. Right, essentially, yes. Yeah, and you've just got to be, you know, you've got to have enough guts to say, uh, I own responsibility for that. And then the whiteies say, oh, but it wasn't us, it was the people who came before us. Uh, so what, why are we responsible? To which I say, now let me think about that. When it comes to the white history of this country, uh, we choose to own with pride our positive achievements, the Federation of the Australian Nation, the courage of Australian uh, servicemen in war and various theatres, and all those sorts of things, which, frankly, we had nothing to do with. So we can mm. appropriate the positive things in white history, but forget about the nasty stuff in white history. You can't be selective. Oh, no. So, um, and that's usually when they shut up. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and so, at least externally shut up, they mutter. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in the sweep of history, despite the attitudes of various conservatives in Australia, that has helped make it almost impossible to go back to the... Um, uh, most dramatic forms of racism we had in Australia before. Uh, we now, even for conservatives, have got them to accept that there was something to apologise for. It did help in the process of reconciliation. How do we make these things better for the future? We'll continue to disagree in the detail of it, but I think as a turning point in Australian attitudes towards race, it was pretty important. So I'm pleased to have been one small historical vehicle in that process. Going back to that speech, how did you prepare for it? Were you nervous when you delivered it? Uh, it's a funny old thing in politics. Um, various uh, advisors give you recommended texts or recommended suggestions or the public service that give you a whole lot of briefs 
usually about what you can't say. Uh, the great fear at the time was that I'd open this Pandora's box for compensation claims against the Commonwealth of Australia for previous 200 years of screwing people, as I said right. before. And, uh, right. <laughs> and so I, as, a, as a dutiful Australian diplomat by training, I read my policy briefs and I read these texts and I found them all utterly useless and uninspiring. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I quietly pushed them to the edge of my desk in the Prime Minister's office, uh, Prime Minister's study in the uh, residence in Canberra. And then I just took out a blank piece of paper with a pen and I wrote the speech longhand. Um, really? But when I started to write, it was just classic writer's block. So I figured that what I needed to do was sit down with a member of the Stolen Generation and to hear from them what it was like. So I asked one of my ministerial colleagues to find someone. And I ran into this, and, and they arranged for me to sit down and spend time with an 83-year-old lady who'd been ripped away from her family at the age of five in the Northern Territory and never saw her parents again. And so I just went out to her house, and this was only a few days before the apology was delivered, and I had not written a word by that stage. Really? Yeah, seriously. Like, it was ba bad behaviour on my part, but, uh, but I sat down on the living room floor of this suburban house and just listened for three hours. Politicians rarely listen. We usually tell people what they need to know. Right. Think, but just listening. And then finally having listened to the abject cruelty that was administered to this young child, I was able to begin and to write and to write. But I didn't finish writing it um, with the amused to know until 10 minutes before I stood up to deliver it. I didn't have the I didn't have the conclusion right. And so to the complete despair of my staff and my ministerial colleagues. They must have been going crazy because they probably wanted copies and uh, copies and copies and copies exactly. and get and the I, distribution I, channels right, etc. Yeah, so uh, so I'm still there finishing it writing off. longhand. <laughs> well no, but no, by that stage I'm dictating to a staff member who's on a uh, on a PC. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't have time to be nervous. I just walked in and I looked up and I said, pardon the profanity, I said, shit, there's a lot of people here. And and uh, the chamber in the House of Representatives in Canberra is huge. Uh, it's a modernist building. And um, uh, we had invited the entire national Aboriginal leadership. It was a sea of black faces. and uh, Probably for the first time in that building, right? Yeah, certainly in those numbers, and what I had done, and part of the reason for not having finished the speech earlier, was that uh, I'd insisted that each of them was greeted personally by me as they entered the building. What a nice touch. And so I had them brought around to the ceremonial entrance of the building adjacent mm -hmm. to the Prime Minister's office, not the, just the standard public entry. And so, and that, because everyone degenerated into tears, took a lot of time yeah. and so of uh, it took uh, more than an hour rather than so this was why I was somewhat delayed in uh, getting my um, my speech, speech ready. so when I walked in and I thought oh boy <laughs> a lot of people here. <laughs> so you know the gods were with us that day and we were able to I think engineer that level of attitudinal change within our country
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Do you miss being in politics at all? Look, I think any honest answer to that question is that... uh, I don't miss uh, the machinations of politics. I mean, I know politicians the world over. They form into two groups. Those who love uh, playing Machiavelli and the uh, art and science of, of political manipulation, which personally has always made me want to vomit. And then there's another bunch who are actually interested in public policy and that what you can do with the political process to bring about substantial change. That's what I miss. That is important. On the machinery of politics and the its Machiavellian quality, uh, anyone who misses that is, um, has got a medical problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because it's so vicious and often played by a group of people for whom that's their only interest. And therefore, none of their intellectual talents and energies, uh, frankly, are directed at, uh, let's call it what they used to describe in classical times as the common wheel. Politics can be a dirty game. We do know that. Uh, You couldn't finish your term as prime minister because of infighting within your own party. It got me thinking, how do you, on a very personal level, how do you deal with setbacks? I think a combination of... um, Probably three factors. Um, one is, uh, for better or worse, I'm a person of a level of um, non-sectarian religious faith, and that is I do uh, believe in the notion of a higher purpose and a, um, and, uh, a higher good, but also a higher uh, force in the um, affairs of the world. So that's one factor. Second is, I've uh, read enough Stoic philosophy to understand what the Stoics were on about. So you might call me a Christian Stoicist. And then finally, uh, frankly, um, uh, it's the uh, it's the continuing emotional underpinnings of a very close family. So I think it's those three factors. Um, and the thing about all three is that they remain with you in good times and in bad. Often families bear the brunt of this disproportionately, isn't it? Yeah, they can, and, um, and they do. But um, uh, our uh, family, my wife um, of 39 years, and uh, my um, children, uh, our children, uh, are fairly resilient people. 
Mm. The thing about if you've been buffeted by political life, you um, where everyone in a democracy is in the public eye, then, um, yeah, it can be uncomfortable, it can be difficult, but it does build resilience. So, You know, plenty of world leaders, and I was... I was quite amused when I read about the note you sent to President Obama after he got elected in 2008. So go on, tell us, what was in the note? <laughs> well, you know, everyone was into Obama adulation mode, and uh, I, um, yes. <laughs> uh, and because of my views on race, I was uh, in uh, equal <laughs> adulation mode, knowing something about uh -huh. American politics as well. But partly it's the Australian in us that we're not given to acts of sycophancy uh, and, right. to, and to what we would call groveling. And so my opening <laughs> line was, dear, dear Barack, comma, uh, you poor bastard, <laughs> stop. Welcome to Messiah Syndrome, stop. Uh, infinite expectations, finite resources, stop. <laughs> <laughs> How did he react? I thought it was, he said it was the most amusing letter he got. <laughs> <laughs> what was your relationship with him like after that? Oh, pretty good, actually. The, um, ben Barak is a very private person, but of various political leaders around the world, I think I had a closer relationship with him than most and because intuitively I understood uh, where this guy had to have come from in order to prevail in the deep racism of American politics, you know. And let's face it, to be elected as an African-American as President of the United States, given the history that we're all familiar with, it's no small... Yeah, uh, yeah you got you, you got to admire the guy. I mean, that, that took guts. <laughs> but is that how you saw your time as Prime Minister, a time of infinite expectations with finite resources? Of course, it was a statement of the universal truth. That's it. <laughs> you studied Chinese at university. You're a fluent Mandarin speaker. And the Mandarin speakers in my office say that your accent is beautiful. It's spot on. What drew you to study Chinese? The influence of my mother, who just had an, hmm. a fascination in the world. And so she would feed me books and newspaper articles about Asia and China. As I said, she had no formal education. She was self-taught. Yeah. But I remember as a kid, uh, when I was about 13 years old, uh, her walking into my room one day carrying the day's newspaper, and the headline was, uh, China's just been admitted to the United Nations, which uh, 1971, 72. And so she said, this will change the world. Read this. <laughs> she was right. But yeah, for a 13-year-old to pick that up and say, okay, what's this about? Well, you know, I'm I'm more... Beside the benefit of formal education, she didn't. Yeah. And so for her yeah. to pick that as effectively someone who'd never finished high school and worked as a farmhand, quite insightful. Absolutely. And, of course, she was right. Yeah. So these things sort of loom in your memory. And, uh, yeah. of course, there are other influences um, in terms of looking at China slowly entering into the world uh, after Nixon and Kissinger and those things. And by that stage, I'm in high school, and I'm observing yeah. it. I'm saying this is this is kind of fascinating. And then when I finished high school, you'll be amused by this. I wrote to the then Prime Minister of Australia, uh, Gough Whitlam, uh, uh -huh. from the Labor Party, <laughs> and said, uh, "Dear Mr. Whitlam, um, I'd like very much to be an Australian diplomat, 
what should I do? Oh, fantastic. And did he reply? He said, um, go to university and study a foreign language. Oh, really? Signed, E.G. Whitlam. That's amazing. Do you still have that letter? No, actually, I can't find it. It's probably buried okay. in my archive somewhere. But uh, I'm from a conservative part of Australia, in rural Australia in Queensland, uh, which is kind of like a cocktail of Louisiana or Arkansas and maybe on a good day parts of California. But um, <laughs> called in Australia the deep north. As I said, well, if you get a letter from the Prime Minister which says go to university and study your Prime Minister, that's what you do because we instinctively respond to authority up here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and you listen to what the Prime Minister says. <laughs> that's right, then you go and do it. <laughs> so, so I did all those things. And, but to be frank, I didn't know what a diplomat was. And when I finished my degree, I didn't even know what a foreign service was. Um, and someone said I should apply. And so I did, but to give great credit to the meritocratic nature of the Australian Foreign Service as a kid from no background, no nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they said, yeah, you, you've got what it takes, off you go. So uh, I passed all the exams and, and uh, the rest is history. So and then I eventually landed That's up in China. What do you do in your downtime? What do I do in my downtime? I've seen lots of videos of you engaging in handball matches. <laughs> That's largely an accident. I mean, I arrived uh, early one day at a, a large school in my electorate several years ago uh, to deliver the usual speech, you know, for assembly. Yes. And, uh, yeah. and the kids said, uh, come on, K-Rod. Uh, <laughs> I think I was foreign minister at the time. Uh, let's show what you're made of. So, so you know, I, went, I hadn't played handball since I was in high school myself. So the kids then produced a video of it. It went viral because kids in Australian schools play a lot of handball because it's yeah. something you can do in a small space. And, you know. Right. And so, uh, so since then, it just evolved into me becoming the handball king of Australia. And so, uh, so wherever I go, I challenge kids' handball games. I know. I wondered where it began. So this is good to know. Largely is an accident. <laughs> but I use it on behalf of the National Apology Foundation for Indigenous Australians, which my wife and I set up. So the deal is I'll go and play handball at your school but you get to have a presentation from me on racial reconciliation. Aha, uh-huh. okay. So there's a, yeah. there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's a method to my madness. <laughs> so back to my original question. So yes, how much downtime do you have actually? And do you manage to find some time for yourself? And what do you do to unwind? Well, uh, my wife and I, um, we, um, we walk a lot. <sighs> we swim. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot, and we've got three kids whose lives are very full, and two little grandkids. So, so as mm. a result of that, you know, for me, I've never really had this idea of what is downtime. Uh, life is very full. Uh, doing what you're passionate about. I don't have this clear delineation between work and play, or mm-hmm. you know, it's for me, it's a continuum. Uh, and some would say, that's so, so unhealthy. Well, not if you like what you do. Um, and sure. So, and so, but at present, um, you know, like putting myself to sleep at night rather than reading, you know, uh, texts on Chinese dialectical materialism, 1921, 1924, uh, which I am reading at the moment for other reasons. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like if that's bedtime reading, I... 
you know. <laughs> no, I fully concede that is not bedtime reading. Uh, but to try and understand the mind of the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party, it's, it's important to read that stuff. Anyway, but I, I will read classically historical fiction. So I'm reading Hilary Mantel at present, and I'm reading um, uh, The Mirror and the Light, Volume 3 in the trilogy about uh, the life of uh, Thomas Cromwell. So I tend to like that sort of stuff because what you do by reading historical fiction or, or genuine biography of autobiography is you soon discover that at one level there is nothing new under the sun. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I love your stories. <laughs> Good to be with you as well. That was Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia, speaking to me on Out of Office. You can find more episodes of this podcast by Bloomberg Live on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg Terminal, or on Bloomberg.com. We're also on Twitter, and our handle is simply at Podcasts. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. You can tweet at me at This Is Malika. I'd love to hear from you. I'll be back next week with another casual conversation with a newsmaker. Until then, stay well and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.